Next Chapter Podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. When I was seven years old, I'd be downstairs in the basement, black and white TV, turn the volume down, and announce baseball games. Solo, just in your, in oh, your yeah. basement? Oh, oh yeah, man. yeah. And I, you know, I'd be screaming my fool head off, but there was something about it. And the words of encouragement I would receive from my parents upstairs was, shut up, please. Born in Chicago. I was born in Chicago in 1941. By the Paul Butterfield Blues Band from their 1965 debut album of the same name. It's also number 468 out of 500 on The 500 with Josh Adam Myers, a.k.a. His Fleeceness. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the only podcast where we go through Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the top 500 albums from 500 down to one. And we're at 468. We're making our way. Making my way downtown. Nothing time. Bye, button, ski, button, doo da. I love you, Fleece Army. I love you so much. You guys are great. Everybody uh, loved the Andrew Santino episode. It's a great episode. If you haven't listened to it, go back, listen to it, because we've got so many more. In all actuality, we've got like, I think, we, have we done? No, we haven't done, th- we've done over, I'm terrible at math, so I'm like trying to figure it out, all right? 468 plus 2 is 470. We've done 32 episodes. What the fuck, dude? That's insane. I just showed how dumb I am. Thank you if you did the Instagram stories, guys. Keep helping get the word out. Take a screenshot of how you're listening to The 500 and tag me at Josh Adam Myers and do a hashtag The 500 Podcast. Give me a 24-hour ad on your social media. I love you to death. Today in music for June 12th, in 2015, in Gothenburg, Sweden, Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters fell off stage and broke his leg. He had his leg set backstage and returned to perform more songs. I get that because I have fallen while being crowd surfed, while I'm crowd surfing. And I remember one time they were like carrying me from the, like I jumped into the crowd and I kind of went out a little bit. And then they started bringing me back, and then they just dropped my, like, body on the side of the stage. So the corner of the stage just, like, 
crushed. Like my ribs and my kishkas. That's what we call that area, the kishkas. Uh, that like side area that like if you touch it, it's fine. But if somebody else touches it, you're like, get the fuck off of me. Oh my God, that, that tickles like shit. So that's the most gangster shit. When it happened to me, when I fell and I got hurt, it was like um, the end of the show. So for Dave, and that, but you know what sucks is that because that he did that and he built that throne and he started playing from there. In, in my opinion, like that was just, it took all, like how would you like to get tickets to go see him? Or, and I remember like, like uh, Axl Rose had it as well. And to go see your favorite band while they're on a throne, I mean, I don't know. But I love Dave. So big ups to Dave. Happy anniversary, Mr. Grohl. And now a little bit about a band that probably most of you have never heard of. Released in 1965 on Electra Records, this is the debut album by the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, a biracial, electric, Chicago blues, rock, jazz fusion combo. For many music fans, the release of this album, which featured three middle-class white musicians and a black rhythm section, was their introduction to integrated electric blues. As drummer Sam Lay put it, we were part of an interracial mainstream blues band that made history. And according to guitarist Elvin Bishop, it's for two reasons that I'm really proud to have been a part of the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, a.k.a. the PBBB. It was, no, I'm just kidding. It was the first real indication that black and white people could work together in a band like that, and it was the way the blues first crossed over to the general public. Before that, the blues was kind of a small department of folk music. In America, the band were among the first to play Bill Graham's ballroom clubs like the Fillmore East and Fillmore West. Fame concerts like the Newport Folk Festival in 65, where some of the band also backed Bob Dylan's first infamous electric performance and Woodstock. The band was discovered in 64 by Electra staff producer Paul Rothschild, who would go on to produce The Doors and Janis Joplin. After being told by a friend that the best band in the world was on stage at a blues bar in Chicago. Rothschild was impressed and signed them to Elektra, where it took three attempts to record this debut album. This is a great band. This is an incredible record. And I got a real fan. My guess is a legend. One of the original Sports Center anchors. You know him for when he laughed at Carl Lewis when he sang the Star Spangled Banner prior to a New Jersey Nets game. Written by Francis Scott off key. Those were last night's lowlights. They're last night's highlights. He's also the voice of the LA Dodgers who took over for Vince Scully. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. High 
fly ball into right field. She is gone. I lost the best friend I ever had. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week is Charlie Steiner. I am stoked that I got to sit down with him. He's a real fan. He's seen him live. He loves the PBBBB. Don't forget to listen to the end of the podcast, guys, where we're going to spotlight a new artist that was directly influenced by the PBBBB. Also, rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500. Follow me on all social media at Josh Adam Myers. Email the podcast at 500podcasts at gmail.com. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, nothing left to say, but here we go. With number 468 out of 500 with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, a.k.a. the PBBB. All right, so not only are you a huge fan of this album and the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, but you've actually seen them live. For some reason, when I was 15 years old, there was this band with a Jewish guitarist by the name of Mike Bloomfield and this guy who could play the harmonica. And it was the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. So this is like 65, 66. It was in the middle of Beatlemania. And there was this new, old blues, but new music for a teenager like me. I was always a music fan. From the time I was eight, nine years old, listening to Top 40 on WABC in New York, there was something about music, there was something about radio, that just grabbed me like the RCA Victor dog and my ear to the speaker. You're from the Mayberry of Long Island, so you wouldn't really assume that blues would be so prevalent. I was 15 miles from Manhattan. I was the quintessential post-war baby boomer. My dad fought in World War II. My parents both grew up in the Depression. Even as a kid, I was kind of interested in Jack Kerouac. The notion of being on the road and free and rebelling against whatever the hell we were rebelling at. I was always kind of drawn into the stuff that wasn't exactly mainstream. And again, here, young guys playing old music, but there was a cohesion to what they were doing, doing stuff that, you know, to that point, I was not familiar with, but they grabbed me. I mean, there was a great band in the village, the Blues Project, that featured Al Cooper, uh, Danny Cal. And it was so, again, here are these young white guys playing great blues music now with, you know, a rock and roll bent to it. I'm in. So we're going to get more into the band, but one of my favorite facts about lead guitarist Mike Bloomfield is that he got a transistor radio for his bar mitzvah, and that set everything in motion. And what a lot of fans might not know is that in 1967, you started your career as a college radio DJ for your alma mater, Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois. Did that get you free tickets to shows and stuff? Is that really what started the the love for music? 
the love for music came, I guess, as a result of my love for radio. I always loved the radio. And what came out of the radio when I was a teenager? But music and baseball games. Yeah. Um, and when I was 12, 13 years old, again, I was just mesmerized by radio and disc jockeys. My older cousin, one day knowing all this, took me to WABC, the number one radio station in the Western Hemisphere, where they had Cousin Brucey, Cousin Bruce Mark. Hi, everybody all over America. This is your Cousin Brucey. It's the WABC Party. Go, go. Woo! Scott Muni, who would years later actually offer me a job. Um, and so watching these guys work and listening to the music that they played, it was like, okay, I'm in. And so it's not unlike, I suppose, Bloomfield. When he heard the music come out of his transistor radio, he was as hooked into what he wanted to be when he grew up sure. as I was when I would eventually grow up. I mean, I always wanted to be a, the Brooklyn Dodger announcer. When I was seven, the first time I heard Vince Scully do a baseball game on oh, the radio. Man. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed a perfect game. On the scoreboard in right field, it is 9.46 p.m. in the city of the Angels, Los Angeles, California. That's what I want to be. The odds of that happening were less than zero. So, long, <laughs> torturous story. About 10 minutes after I graduated high school in 67, I went off to Haight-Ashbury. And I thought, well, this could be really cool. And you think? <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, about I just, as, I, that's about as cool as it could possibly be. I, I have lived a very Gumpian experience. <laughs> I, you know, you go because, okay. Gumpian. I, I like that. I'm using that again. Because, so I end up in Haight-Ashbury, and I'm hearing all of these bands. And for, I, I see Big Brother in the Holding Company, Janis Joplin, before I ever heard of them. She had had one single... Down on me. And so I end up in Haight-Ashbury for the summer. Problem was, I also had to go to school, and there was this little thing called the draft. So mm -hmm. I had... At the some, NBA draft, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was hardly a first round. <laughs> you were the you were the Sam Bowie of the, of your, actually he was number one. Number no, one. I, you know, I was barely a walk-on. So where I'm there and I'm hearing all this stuff. I hear cream and I hear Hendrix and I hear <laughs> And I remember seeing I mean, him, and, and I had a uh, just a blistering headache um, before, <laughs> and it was it, it was it was it was torturous but spectacular. So I see all these bands, and now it's getting the to the end of the summer of '67. I have a fundamental choice to make: Do I stay here and become a full-time hippie and continue to sell the Berkeley Barb, which was a week a weekly newspaper for a quarter? Um, down at Fisherman's Wharf with the eight or nine people that I had uh, joined in this 
quasi-commune, I suppose. Or would I go to college? And if I stayed, you know, I would be on the front lines of Danang or something. That wasn't going to happen. So I go off to school. But when I go to Peoria, I bring with me about a dozen great albums that folks outside of the San Francisco hip community had never heard before. So I show up, college campus, and hair down to here, and I walk into the radio station. I said, hi, you're going to get to know me. I'm going to be here for a long time. <laughs> and so I brought these records and, and, and started playing them on the radio. And I, I doubt that Butterfield was under my arm, but certainly it, it was there. Um, and so I started playing. Now, this is how old I am. The show that I did, my first radio show, and the title of the show uh, was not as stupid then as it sounds now. It was the Flower Power Hour. Yeah, I, <laughs> 50 years later, I still apologize for that. <laughs> it's a great name. Don't but it, but don't it shit on that. Flower it Power worked. Hour. That's, that's so, I, so I played that stuff all the time. And again, I always wanted to be the Dodger announcer, but I loved radio, and if I couldn't go that way, maybe I would become a disc jockey, an underground disc jockey. Again, how long ago was it? That, that, that's, this is now classic rock. That stuff was new when I was playing it. Um, that's awesome. And, and, you know, the only thing on the radio in those days, quote-unquote class, classic or classical music was on the FM, and it was... Tchaikovsky and Shostakovich and Beethoven. So, so now I'm playing all this weird stuff and, and loving every minute of it. And, you know, I'm playing it on a college radio station for my contemporaries who are all 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. And it, it was, again, it was a, a, a time of, you know, I don't want to get too heavy. It was a musical discovery, a spiritual discovery, a political discovery. That's what it was in the 60s when we were post-war baby boomers growing up. But that's continued even into, so So Jeremiah, who you worked with on the serious show Baseball Beat, said that you were so obsessive about choosing exactly the right song for each guest that appeared on the show. When did you make the real jump from music DJ to to sports? It, w it wasn't a jump as much as it was an evolution. Again, when I was starting, FM radio was not a lot of rock. Maybe there was one station really? per market. I, I don't know why that just shocks me because it's because like every – I thought every town had like their one rock station. Uh, they, uh, well, DC be 101. Before that, there were none. And so at some sad. point, there had to be one. Wait, so then who was playing the Beatles and shit? Well, like no, that? that was that was top forty. Oh, you know that was those were you the forget hits. about that. That does, yeah, that, Th that was those still. were the hits. Album rock, you know, it was a big deal if you played a song that lasted more than three and a half minutes. And now all of a sudden, you have these songs that are going seven, eight, nine, ten minutes. Where a top forty commercial station um, did not have the time, luxury, or inclination to play longer music. So that's when that's when it became FM underground, and 
FM After Dark. And that's what it was. <laughs> I mean, it's, again, it you sounds as... the forefront of that. <laughs> it sounds as dopey as the Flower Power Hour. But it was the, you know, this was a first. This was a whole new trend, uh, not in music, but in broadcasting. We were all doing stuff for You're the first time. You're creating it as you go along. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Oh, that's got to be so exciting. Oh, it was fabulous. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You know, again, I've been really lucky whether it was doing that. Or as the career went on, going to ESPN, when we kind of evolved out of that, and, you know, when it worked, it was great. When it didn't, we didn't do it anymore. Those were the luxuries that I had in my career, just, again, being gumpy and just being in a right place, right time where all this stuff was happening. You just go out and do it, and if it works, cool, and if not, no harm, no foul. And so, again, going back, to my college radio station, I'm showing up with all this music nobody had heard before, and people are going, wow, who's she? Oh, that's Janis Joplin. Oh, my God. <laughs> Again, I, you it, just forget. It's like you forget that these people were, because I see them only as icons, and then you forget that at one point they were nobodies. And they, they were 20-something no, yeah. years old also. Yeah. Well, you know, again, whether it's Paul Butterfield or Janis Joplin or Grace Slick, I mean, they were kids, too, and I just happened to be listening to them and were, were fans of them when I was a kid. But let me, let me, not to say, just to go off of that, be, well, like, how have you been with keeping up with music now? I, mean, I don't did you, to you just, you get, When did you stop? What's the year? <laughs> like, you're like, when you I know, heard Guilty by Barry Gibb and Barbara Streisand, that was it, I tapped out. <laughs> you know, again, I, I, it's a product of age, yeah. and, I, and, and, I'm, and I'm proud to say it. I, early to mid-60s is when I started listening to 45s on AM. You had the San Francisco, folk, rock. You had the British Invasion, of course, the Beatles. Then along came Motown. Uh, so all of this stuff had never been played before, much less recorded before. So we were there at a time, and, I, and I, damn it, I don't mean to sound like a, a, a dinosaur, but the fact of the matter is this was all new and utterly created at a time when I was growing up. I don't listen to a whole lot of the new stuff. And, and when, when I do come across an artist, um, it's like, wow. Great, yeah. but but the music has not fundamentally or radically changed to me uh, for the last 30, 35 years. I'm not. I have no interest. I have no ear. It's also in, terrible though. In hip hop, new music is is kind of going to shit. A little I, bit. I will. I, I'll leave that. You know, <laughs> to your assessment. I just know that I don't find it anywhere near as interesting 
as I did at a time when, geez, when people lined up outside a music store because the new Beatles album would be released at midnight for an album. I know. I did uh, that for Wu Tang forever. I did that. I don't know if you're a fan of Wu Tang. You you look like a Wu Tang. Fan. Uh, <laughs> you miss it by that much. <laughs> you're, I'm, I'm a fan of Jew Tang. It's it's a Jewish drink. That's, it's <laughs> that's Jewish right. orange soda. <laughs> Local. Um, <laughs> you never got into grunge or any of no, that kind of stuff, really. Nirvana. But you appreciate it, oh, though, of course, right? Because you yeah. can still hear it and go, "Oh, that's a good song." Yeah. yeah that's. But you know, and it's kind of like you know, I covered boxing. And I was fortunate, again, going back to this Gumpian thing, I covered the last great era for the sport. My first fight was Ali Holmes. My last fight was Tyson Holyfield in the ear bite. Oh, my and, God. And, and I looked into the camera that night and said, Evander Holyfield and a portion of his right ear were rushed <laughs> to the hospital in separate cars, <laughs> which was true. And But boxing has not been the same since yeah, occasionally uh, there's a fight. So, so for me, uh, music has gone the same route as boxing. It's just simply not as interesting to me as it was at a time when I was intimately involved with it. No, completely. I can completely agree with that. All right. I don't want to embarrass you, but I think this is such an amazing success story. I read that when you graduated from Bradley in 71, you had $700 to your name. And now... Bradley has the Charlie Steiner School of Sports Communication. Yeah. Which is just incredible. And in 2013, they named their sports communication school in your honor. Besides helping them out financially, you said that you would spend a week every fall to teach writers, broadcasters, and publicists. And I got your quote. You said, you get a certain point in your life where you want to give back. Was that just the way you were brought up? I you wasn't trying to brought fl- up trying to, to flex. You know, I, I, I wasn't brought up to say, hey, I'm going to have a school named after me. Sometime. No, but I mean, you know, it's like, you know, maybe- the most my father ever made in a year was $18,000. They were middle, middle class. They took the Long Island Railroad in and out, a train at seven o'clock in the morning. He'd be home at six o'clock at night. On the food chain of middle class life, we were just a little bit below the cleavers. When I was seven years old, I'd be downstairs in the basement black and white TV, turn the volume down, and, and announce baseball games. You used to do that? You used to do that solo, just in your, in oh, your yeah. basement? Oh, oh yeah. Man. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'd be screaming my fool head off, but there was something about it. And the words of encouragement I would receive from my parents upstairs was, shut up, please. <laughs> please, we beg you. <laughs> um, but they always knew this was a They're route. like, honey, it's going to extra innings. Like, oh. gosh, shut this motherfucker. Uh, you know, God damn, you know, we have dinner. <laughs> but to their credit, they said, you know, my mother would always say, you know, if it doesn't work out, you can always work for your father. What did he do? Well, he had a little plastics factory in Manhattan. I mean, I'll tell you, 18 grand a year. Um. And I worked for him one summer, and I knew that was never going to happen. Yeah. Um, and so then I started on this journey. I, so I, I get to this little school in Peoria, Illinois, Bradley, which was a great basketball school. That was my path. I went there in hopes of announcing some basketball games that I could begin this career. I, I came to the conclusion early, Davenport wasn't meant for me, and I wasn't meant for Davenport. It was the only time I ever thought, well, I'm just not good enough if this is where I have to stay and 
live my life. Um, and then at the last instant, uh, guy that I was rooming with, uh, was sending out air checks in hopes of finding a, a job at some radio station somewhere. Um, and he called this one particular station in New Haven where he had sent an air check. And he said, well, have you listened to it? And the guy at the other end of the phone said, uh, yeah, but it's not exactly what you're, we're looking for, but who was the newscaster on your tape? It was me. And he said, uh, do you know him? He said, he's my roommate. They put me on the phone and I get the job. And so I was able to make the escape from Davenport. Um, and then in, I was in New Haven and Hartford and Cleveland. And in those years, I was a newscaster and I was running news departments. I was 23, 24 years old. And uh, two of the four stations over the ensuing years were, um, became all news. And so suddenly I'm a news director at news stations. Um, get a job in Cleveland uh, to run an all news station. And they had just fired a, an old sportscaster. They needed a sportscaster and I hired me. So I did sports and ran the news. Uh, then, through a bunch of weird shit, uh, I get hired in New York at 99X, which was a big top 40 station. And that's in the late 70s as disco was beginning to happen. And we, st we were a top 40 station, but I was the news guy. If I can't have you, I don't want nobody, baby. Well, not quite. Um... <laughs> But what happened was, Saturday Night Fever came out. Oh, it's so good. And, and you know, the top five songs every week were Bee Gees songs. It's Night Fever again, guys. And this is where the fellow named Bobby Rich was the uh, program director of the station. And he came up with a, a wonderful bit. Uh, it would be a no Bee Gees weekend. It was disco, yes, but, but musically it was, a, it, it was good stuff. RKO, which owned 99X, had a radio network, of which uh, I became the sports director. Uh, RKO was uh, started by David Sarnoff. Uh, Is that true? I don't. I took a class in college, uh, intro to electronic Sarnoff, media. I think was NBC, but it had three letters. You were close. I'm sorry, Professor McGillicuddy. I, I didn't remember anything from your class. McGillicuddy had more letters <laughs> yeah. than either one of the networks. So, so anyway. Uh, making a, a long story seemingly endless suddenly was in a uh, at this network where i was now running the sports department and i hired a young john madden who had just retired from coaching oh my after god he takes a penalty bob greasy used to be the master at this he said i always get him when i go hut 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 and then hut and it's on four now watch him he's going Hut, hut, hut. See, but the guy got his guy, Keith Van Horn, number 78, instead of the Ram defense. That man was trying to get them, and it got his own guy. I think you just got half of our audience, too. And a 21-year-old kid named Keith Olbermann. Reggie Miller from way downtown. Bang. And then Mark Jackson's turn, also from three-point land. Jackson again, circus move. Pacers on a 9-0 run, just walk away, PJ. And I'm working now on the AM station, WOR, which the number one morning show and had been for 50 years. Station 
purchases the rights to the United States Football League team in New York, the New Jersey Generals, who would eventually be owned by Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. Yeah. So I have a, a long, sordid history <laughs> with him. Um, and then one, so I'm so in this. I'm getting out of the music end more into the news and sports end than the play-by-play end, and then. ESPN comes along, and I do 14 years there. Uh, and then I get an offer to go to the Yankees, um, and I'm there for three years. And then uh, in 2004, the Dodgers asked me if I'd like to join them and How do the play-by-play. How fucking cool is that, oh, man? Hey. That's, dude, you are Forrest Gump. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I, I, I've, had, I've had an unbelievably fortunate uh, run. Um, the... Branch Rickey had a great line. He said, uh, luck is the residue of design. And I just happened to be in places when shit happened. And I didn't drop the ball too often. And so getting back to the school thing. So I go to Bradley. Um, Unbeknownst to me, all of these incredibly talented sportscasters happened to go there. I didn't know. Jack Brickhouse, who Hall of Famer, who broadcast for the Cubs for 50 years. Chick Hearn, who uh, did the Lakers until he passed away. Ralph Lawler, who uh, just retired from the Clippers after 40 years. Uh, Bob Holtz, Mark Starr, Bill King, who did uh, the Athletics and the Warriors. There were about 15, 16 great sports casters who just happened to go there. And then Bradley came to realize, hey, we got a little something that just kind of fell into our onto our plate. Uh, then they started adding uh, broadcasting classes. And they would uh, ask me about content and curriculum. Years go on, and then they decide with the broadcasting, sports broadcasting business exploding, they would start a school. And then they come to me one day and said, uh, and they have blueprints and all of this other stuff. And they said, would you like to lend your name uh, to the school? I said, I will lend it to you, but I have to have it back when time is up. (laughs) Uh, And then they asked for an exorbitant sum of money. And I said, well, you, you want me to lend you my name and then you want to take my money. And uh, at this point in my career, it's like I can give back, and it doesn't sound like a bunch of shit. No, not at all. Speaking of family and money, in particular, lead guitarist Mike Bloomfield was the son of a wealthy Jewish manufacturer and was already an heir to millions when the band started. As he didn't have to worry financially, he devoted his time to learning his instrument and mastering the blues. Uh, which is really weird to to find out that an upper-class Jewish boy from Chicago would know about the blues. But according to Al Cooper, his musical collaborator on Super Sessions, a jam album that was his most successful post-Butterfield project. Great album. Michael used to say, it's a natural. Black people suffer externally in this country. Jewish people suffer internally. The sufferings, the mutual... I'm going to get this word wrong. Fulcrum? Is that a right? Fulcrum? I've never used that. You know what a fulcrum (laughs) is? What is a fulcrum? If you've got a seesaw, the thing that's in between the 
two sides of the seesaw. That's a fulcrum? That's the fulcrum. Well, the suffering's the mutual fulcrum for the blues. There you go. Okay, so everybody suffers. What would the Charlie Steiner blues be about? It sounds like you haven't suffered. <laughs> you, I, I work my ass off. No, I don't know about suffering. You, <laughs> um, you know, I, I just, uh, I think, again, seeing how hard my dad have, had to work and how my mom was a full-time mom, there was very little margin for error. And if I wanted to succeed, it was going to be uh, on my own terms. Yeah. Um, and I think, and I'm, I'm not a religious guy at all, but I think if you've got an ounce of Jewish blood in you, you, you know, the Holocaust is just part of the DNA. Um, and so, and I don't, again, I don't pretend to be religious, but I suppose maybe that's where the seed of the blues comes. But for me, it's not even that. It's just uh, the primal passion of the music. Um, And, you know, so I I would kick back and and, and turn the music up. And again, when post uh, Haight-Ashbury and the San Francisco sound and, and all of the other stuff, there was, there was a nice continuity about blues music. And, you know, a guy like Paul Butterfield and harmonica, sorry, it's the harp, was, was spectacular. Bloomfield spectacular. was... And, and Bloomfield was great. Al Cooper, who I first became aware of, was, and we talked about this band earlier, the Blues Project uh, back in New York in 65. Um, and so I was, it it was natural for me, I, I, relating to the music sounds a little grandiose. I just like the sound and feel of it. All right. Well, let's, let's get into our album because I could honestly talk to you about anything but this album for the next two hours. All right. Our album is number 468 out of 500. It's a self-titled debut album by the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, released October 1965, produced by Paul Rothschild and Mark Abramson. So, you, like I said, you are a fan of it. Did you listen to it recently when we were getting ready to prepare? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, again, the thing about the album, as I recollect it and as, as I listened to it in, in the last couple of weeks, there was a rawness. There was no very raw. Yeah, there was no fancy production at all. Just go out and play. Oh, I, I, it's for me. It's like I've listened to since we started doing this. BB King live at Cook County Jail. We had Albert King, Born Under a Bad Sign. Mm-hmm. I had known about blues, but I'm still like, I'm still really consuming. You know, like a lot of it through this and. One of my favorite things in the world, and I think it's some of the most beautiful music, is slow blues. So what I loved about this record is a person who had never heard of this band prior to it. I mean, it's it's incredible because they do the fast blues, and a lot of it, most of the album is very fast, but the, the three or four slow blues tracks are phenomenal. It's it's just insane how good the solos were. And they're 23 fucking years yes, old. Yes. You it, know, that's the thing that is so wonderful about listening to that and listening to them, um, you know, at a time when 
and this is the first time I'm hearing this stuff, it was like, whoa, you know, it was a far cry from the monkeys and, uh, and all the other top 40 fair of the mid to late 60s. And here were these young guys, uh, almost contemporaries of mine, you know, they were three, four, five years older than me. And I just, I couldn't get over the fact and again, I, I can't play a lick, but I listen real good to music. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't. I don't know what get, that means, but I love it. I listen real good. Well, I, 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 I can shred I, listening to his solo. I, you know, I put my, you know, my headsets on, and, and I just sit back. And in the old days, I would uh, have the big speakers, and I would sit between them and crank it up. That's what I do. I, I, I went and put speakers all around my apartment. Yeah. It's it's the best thing in the world. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So, uh, again, they, 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 there was something about them which was non-commercial. Yeah. Um, which also was one of the things that kind of attracted me to it. Um, and then I, I took notice that, you know, they were actually playing. I mean, not on yeah. big stages, but in mean. clubs. Yeah. And the first road trip I took when I was 17 with a couple of buddies of mine, we drove up from New York to Montreal because Paul Butterfield was playing there. Nice. And we had a great time. Oh, I know. Montreal is the shit. I, I go every summer for Just for Laughs. Uh, you, you, well, you should have been there in 1966. Seven, yeah, I was going to say, to be 17 there? Yeah. Oh, just raging hormones, just like, woo, poutine! Well, I would, Amongst other things. <laughs> probably not to that degree. Yeah. We were just young guys getting in the car, a road trip. It was a perfect impersonation of a 17-year-old getting into Montreal, by the way. But, guys. you know, I'm, in a, I'm for the first time in, a, in yeah. a city where English is not the dominant language. Going across the border was a exciting. big deal. Yeah, it's exciting. You know, it was a six-hour drive, maybe. And then, you know, at one or two o'clock in the morning, when you know that's when... Bands were playing two, three shows a night. Really? Are they? I just, I never, I never even thought about that. I would have thought they would be like at eight o'clock. They're done. No, no. So, uh, so the shows. Oh, and, and, look, in those days, again, uh, I'm a walking, talking dinosaur. There would uh, these bands would play two or three shows a set, um, and in some clubs, uh, you were ushered out. And it was and the uh, new audience and a new in. audience comes in and and you know there were it was a bar and tables and and they'd play um, you know in New York uh, you had the Bitter End um, Cafe Agogo uh, and, and, and it was to talk about so a lot of those places that they played at yeah and, and so that that 
those were their venues. That's what they played. And it was not uncommon to do two or three shows. And, you know, the last show, uh, you know, the, the liquor was looser and so were the, so were the licks. And, you know, that's where you wanted to be. And you, you remember everything about that show. Like, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just. I, re I remember the ambiance. I don't remember the specifics of the show other than I was a teenage kid in this blues club late at night, early in the morning, far from home. <laughs> and, 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 you know, maybe a hundred people in, in the place. That's oh. what it was. I mean, this is not, these are not auditorium. No, I know. I yeah. know. So what is, like, so seeing them, that's the first time you've seen them. Mm -hmm. All right, and do you remember any thoughts of like just like of the set of just how you felt? I, I again, it was uh, for me the overwhelming memory is that I was in a different country. Sure, no, I get far it. Far from home, and this wonderful music is is, is just uh, you know just exploding inside my brain. Um, <laughs> and again, there was Butterfield and his harmonica. Uh, and Mike Bloomfield and this screaming guitar. Um, and as you said, they really get the slow blues and then, uh, they bring it up. in the album. They bring it. Oh yeah. Like, I mean, let's like, let's just dive into the album. So the album starts with born in Chicago, mm -hmm. Peter play the intro for me. It's just a fun blues song. Born in Chicago, 1941. Well, it was written by Butterfield's old friend and duo partner, Nick Gravenitis. Nick Gravenitis would end up going with Bloomfield to Electric Flag, which was one of the first bands with brass. That version became an underground hit after it was released on a compilation album called Folk Song 65. So that was his biggest hit, uh, which sold 200,000 copies. Let me ask you this. When was the first time that you actually felt like you had arrived? Here's the story. I got to ESPN in 88. The network is now in the process of exploding, and I was on, on the front lines. And my folks still lived in the same house in which I grew up, and I was home for the weekend visiting and having a bite to eat. My mom and my dad and me at the table. My father was just a middle, middle-class guy who couldn't believe that his son is now being recognized. Either could I. <laughs> so he asks me at lunch, very matter-of-factly, so what's your definition of success? I was stumped. I said, I don't know. What's your definition of success, Pop? And he said, success is having the ability to say no when you want to. Wow. And my mom, when I was a kid, and I was a hideously underachieving student, I'd get, you know, B's and C's and the same comment on the same report card for the 10 years leading up. Charles is capable of so much more. <laughs> yeah, I got that. And so <laughs> at one point, my mom just said, here, I got a piece of advice for you. Oh, great. She said, here's the drill. If you give 100% of yourself 100% of the time 
and it's not good enough, there's nothing you can do. But if you don't give yourself 100% chance, 100% of the time, it's only your fault. Whoa. So it's those little two pieces of advice, one for my mom and one for my dad, where, you know, just go out, play hard, do it right. And if it's good enough, it'll work. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. So let's jump to track number four. Thank you, Mr. Pooba. Fun little number. This is the one that made me realize how incredible this guy was on harmonica because it's just phenomenal. Now, this instrumental was the first song recorded for the album. As keyboardist Mark Knopflin hadn't recorded with the band yet and Elvin Bishop was late for the session, they plugged Mark's Hammond B3 organ into Bishop's board channel. This improvised jazzy groove, and play a little bit for us, Peter. This improvised jazzy groove warm-up with traded solos became the fourth song on the record and one of their most popular. When were you in the right place at the right time? Oh, I suppose July 17th, 1949, when I was born. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm dead serious. No, but of course. But I mean, of course, no, I can no, say no, when no. my parents had sex in October or whatever it was Let during a snowstorm. I mean, again, I was lucky enough to have transcended a lot of generations that were historically meaningful uh, to the second half of the 20th century. Uh, musically, politically, socially. Um, and, and I, again, I go back to this Gumpian life. I just happened to be in these incredible places with good fortune at the right time. Um, again, what did I know in, in, in August of 69? I was going to go up to Woodstock and hang out. And I ended up being at Woodstock. Um, and, you know, I was in the middle of uh, doing baseball, sadly, when 9-11 took place. And then I'm doing the first games immediately after 9-11, and as we're all trying to regain our... So, you, yeah, you were, you were with the Yankees at that point. I, I, no, I was no. still at ESPN. Oh, okay. Um, and, I, and I did the last 13 games of Barry Bonds' home run year when he hit 73. Uh, so, I, I, again, I was just in these places. So, again, I'm not being uh, silly when I say I happen to be born for the life that I have lived at precisely the right time. It wasn't like, ooh, I gotta be born now. I just happened to be born then. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's been a great fucking run. Perfect. All right, then we'll jump to track five. I got my mojo working. This is the one I sang at the beginning. This is a classic. Mm -hmm. This is a classic song. I knew this one immediately from Muddy Waters. Peter, play uh, minute two, second 42 when they go into the call and response.
Now, while all other songs on this record besides the instrumentals were sung by Butterfield, this one was sung by drummer Sam Lay. While Butterfield is definitely a soulful singer, the second I heard Sam belt this out, I just could not believe that he was white. And it still blows my mind. Just don't work on Sam's vocals on this song that was made famous by Muddy is just as much of a powerhouse as his upbeat, muscular shuffle on the drums. Sam would go on to play with many other artists, even front his own projects, but this was his only album with the Butterfield Blues Band due to some health issues. But this album is just as good as anything that's pretty much been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So what has been your career highlights so far? Oh, and are there any things that you want to be, you think you'll be specifically remembered for? Beside the sports center commercials and beside losing my shit on, uh, uh, Carl Lewis's bad version of the national anthem. Those will, you know, those will be in my obituary no matter what. Yeah. Um, I mean, he couldn't sing for shit. No, I mean, it was, and, uh, that was horrible. a given. <laughs> yeah. And sadly, I, you were being real. Yeah. Whether it's Carl Lewis at one end and, uh, Follow me to freedom, the commercial at the other end. With the year 2000 approaching, we're trying to make sure the software here at SportsCenter is Y2K compliant. Y2K test in three, two, one. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. You were replaced as an anchor by Melrose Place actor Andrew Shue. Yeah, we were traded. Well, you know, we make trades all the time, and we made a really big one with Melrose Place. It was a blockbuster. We got Shue, they got Steiner. Andrew? Thanks, Gary. I spoke with NFL Commissioner Paul Tagliabue this evening. He would not confirm nor deny reports that the Chicago Bears worked out great for us. How did that come about, and uh, did they need to sell you on that idea, or no. are you just diving headfirst in? When I got there, it was ESPN policy not to sell the personalities of the anchors. But all you guys were was personality. That's why we well, liked we, you. Well, this we weren't yet. Yeah, okay, yeah, at the beginning. We weren't yet. I mean, and president of our network, this is a true story, at a Christmas party where we all get a little liquored up, uh, is, uh, we're pounding down some shots, and he's talking to me. Chris Berman, and the late John Saunders. And I was the new guy. I had not had any television experience, really. And uh, the president says to us, you know, in a per perfect world, um, we would have jugglers, clowns, and monkeys doing Sports Center as long as the logo was there. And then he points to Boomer, Chris, Saunders, and me. But you, you, you uh, fucked up the plan which was the nicest backhanded compliment I'd ever received. So then a year or two goes by, and they decide they're going to come up with this commercial campaign. This is SportsCenter. And one day, these producers from Wyden and Kennedy, the same commercial house that does the Nike spots, they are introduced to us, and then they say, here's, here's our plan. Uh, we're going to do caricatures of you guys. Uh, so they'd been watching us, and we had no idea who these strange people were who were watching us. And then they came up with this campaign. And for whatever reason, uh, they gave me a lot of the really good punchlines. I don't know why. Um, but I was very thankful, you know, whether it was... Because you knew music. That's why. They probably knew because you knew music and you have timing. 
That's probably it. I, I, you, I, got, I, you got, dude. I'm looking around your know. place. It's all, it's all. You've got the beat is everywhere. I, I feel it. Well, it's only because I stub my toe late <laughs> at night, and it's a rim shot. <laughs> the crazy thing was when I got to ESPN, I was the oldest anchor there who had no television experience. So I'm learning on the fly, and so the the concept behind the Melrose play spot was that the veteran, me, was going to be traded for the young guy, Shue, Andrew Shue. He, ESPN gets the young, good-looking guy, and, and, and Melrose Place gets me. When we go out and shoot my part of that commercial, I go out there, and all the guys who are on the show were coming over and saying, hi, they want to talk sports and all this stuff, and the women had no idea who the hell I was. And then this... Poor woman, Laura Layton, I believe her name was. Um, we're introduced, and she looks at me, and she's thinking, this is the end of my career. Um, and so there I am, dressed up in a tank top, short pants, hat on backwards, wearing my regular glasses, sunglasses on top of the head, and I'm cleaning the pool. And uh, she walks by. and Hi, Sydney. I'm Bobby. I'm the new pool boy. Want to rub some cocoa oil on my back? And she looked at me with understandable disdain. And then I, I was traded, and um, and they quickly sent me back. You know, again, I had they gave me a bunch of really funny. Oh, they're uh, great, man. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, even and they still they still have a shelf life. There's, there's something about it, like the anchors now compared to the original guys. I, I feel like there was. It's almost like you see the first cast of Saturday Night Live, and you just you felt something that was really special. Now it just it's like they're just they're we all had, doing imitations of you yeah, guys. That's literally we had it. nobody to follow. We, uh, we we that was us. So we were all, this is, we were naturally organic. A bunch of guys doing sports in Bristol, Connecticut, at a time when cable was just beginning to, to sprout. Um, the next group arrived. We'd already had the Sports Center commercial thing going on, um, and Sports Center itself was growing. So the guys who were watching us and women, uh, watched us in college. We had nobody to watch. We just showed up and did stuff. Yeah, and it and it worked. And so you know, it. it so whether it's a Paul Butterfield with these young white middle class kids playing blues for the first time, and we're listening, going, "Whoa!" We uh, there was nothing to compare to. All right, uh, this one's my favorite. Before we get into facts, this is my favorite song on it. Mystery Train. And at first, I it sounded a very, very close to Mojo, but uh, it's just, it's this song just resonated with me. Peter, play the intro for me. This 1953 Junior Parker and Sam Phillips composition was lyrically similar to the 1930s folk song Worried Man Blues by the Carter family. And when Elvis Presley released his version in 55 on Sam Phillips' Sun record label, it made him a national country star. Now, although the lyrics have varied slightly with each cover version, this upbeat rockabilly number still contains the elements of loss of the original. What have been some of your most profound losses? 
Hmm. Um, I guess uh, when you lose your parents, it's tough. Sure. Uh, but each parent uh, had a long, good life. My father was 88. My mom was 96. And one of the things I've come to learn, the smarter they've become, the longer they've been dead. Um, thinking back to the stuff that they would tell me then, I go, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, again, upon reflection, they always had their best interest in me. And so when they said stuff, they meant it. I just at that, as a kid, didn't think it was that big a deal because that's what parents say. But, you know, certainly losing your parents. But I, again, I was lucky. Uh, I had an offer to go to uh, the Giants or the Yankees at the end of 2001. Uh, I went to the Yankees because my father, who had been in ill health, would have a chance to hear me last couple of years. Worked out great. Oh, that's great. He passes away, and then I get an offer to come to the Dodgers. Um, Which has been your dream exactly. since your whole life. And, and to work alongside Vin Scully, the guy that I always wanted to be like. And so when I tell my mother I was going to L.A., and she said, this is six months after my father had died, she said, oh, good, when do we move to Los Angeles? I went, oh, so anyway, she comes out. She's in, a, in an assisted living home. Now, now we're all going to die. We are? I, you know, I keep <laughs> what? hoping what? I'm the exception. What did they tell me? <laughs> On the day that she died, she's in this assisted living place with Dee Dee, her caregiver, taking care of my father. And she was just beginning to learn about the Internet. And she was reading the New York Times with big print and all of that. And then on this particular day, Dee Dee introduces her to Google. Now, my mom is Googling her son. And she's looking at all of this stuff, and her eyeballs are about ready to blow out of her head. She turns to Dee Dee and asks, does one person write all of this stuff about Charles? Uh, No. <laughs> And two or three or four minutes later, she gets up for a bite of a ham sandwich or whatever it was. She has a stroke and dies, which is if I'm going to die, that's how I want to go. Never knew what hit her. Um, and she was uh, 96. Um, so both of my parents, you know, nobody ever dies healthy. Uh, but they went out in a good place in a good space. Oh, completely. Uh, to go off the title, though, what do you think are some of life's mysteries? Why there's so much inherent hate. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't get where this country is now. I don't understand it. Um, I've never understood it. Um, I, that, to me, is the greatest mystery. What's up, everyone? This is Jay Reason, and I want to let you all know that Diablo Zen Podcast is now part of the Sound Talent Media family. Listen in as me and the one and only Danny Diablo, a.k.a. Lord Ezak, interview artists from the hardcore punk, metal, hip-hop scenes, and beyond. We have conversations with guests like actor Peter Green, DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, L.A. street photographer Estevan Oriol, Jimmy G from New York City's legendary Murphy's Law, and pro wrestler Vampiro, to name a few. If you're a fan of good discussions, lots of laughs, tune in and join the fun. It just blows my mind. Yeah, it, it, it's so sad. Um, 
Especially when you see it coming out of the woodwork. It's like you get to a certain point, you're like, I feel like, yeah, there's people that still hate people, but it, for the most part, it's, it's you know, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty, there's a lot of love. And then something happens like what happened with, you know, the government changing and then it's just, and they all come out and you're like, what the, f like, where did that come from? Yeah. It's like, it's like uh, somehow, some way they, they lifted the rock and underneath all this hideous stuff has now been exposed. And uh, that's one of the great mysteries and one of the things that probably uh, saddens me most. Yeah. After that, I don't worry about the bigger picture. If there's an afterlife, my first words will be, Jesus, am I surprised? <laughs> All right. Mellow down easy. I love this song. This Willie Dixon cover, full of crackling energy. Like some of the others, the lyrics aren't that deep, but it does seem to be about letting off some steam so you can relax. So funny because it's about relaxing, but it makes me want to bop. There's something about this song. It's incredible. What are some of the most exciting games that you've ever seen and or called? I guess the game in which uh, Aaron Boone hit a walk-off home run to end the 2003 American League Championship Series in the bottom of the 11th, Game 7. I happen to be lucky enough to be at the microphone when Boone hit the home run. His first at-bat of the game. There's a flat ball. And thankfully, that call still has uh, some resonance uh, because it just came out of the blue. I remember when Michael Moore was beating the hell out of George Foreman until Foreman just hit him with an uppercut yeah, out of nowhere. Uh, that was like, whoa. Um, there was a game that the Dodgers played against the Padres maybe 10, 12 years ago when they hit four consecutive home runs in the bottom of the ninth to tie the game. And uh, Nomar Garciaparra hit a walk-off home run in the 10th to win that game. That was kind of fun. We talked about exciting games. Uh, how do you mellow down after calling such, you know, incredible games? Uh, it, uh, oh, I got one more for you. Now keep going, please. Uh, the... Um, the Jets and Miami Dolphins played an epic game in 1986. And the Jets came from behind and won in sudden death. Well, they tied the game on the final play of the regular regular time. And then won on a long touchdown pass from uh, Ken O'Brien to Wesley Walker. And they won 51-45. to 45. And it was just one of those games where... When it was over, I remember signing off and leaning against the wall and just kind of shrinking to the floor. I, I, I had nothing left. You know, thankfully, having done this for so long, you know when to uh, turn the spigot off. And it takes just on a routine night, if I'll get home from a game, 
oh, about 11 o'clock or so. I don't fall asleep till 1, 1.30. It's just a natural process of winding down. Some guys uh, can go to sleep right away. I need to decompress. Glass of wine and call it a night. What do you do when the game's boring, though? How do you spice? That's, do you ever feel the need to spice it up? No, uh, <laughs> but uh, w- w- what what you do, uh, years ago, John Miller, who, great baseball. I know John, he used to be an Orioles guy. Yes. He's, he looked like Ben Franklin. Yes. John's <laughs> a dear friend. He did the Sunday night games on television. I did the Sunday night games on radio. He does the Giants. I do the Dodgers. We've been a f- friend for a very long time. About 20 or so years ago, we're in New York and we're doing a playoff game. He's doing the TV, I'm doing the radio, and we're having a having dinner and having one of these dopey philosophical uh, discussions about our profession. And uh, I said, so what do you do? He said, just tell them everything you see. It's that simple. So if it's a boring game, you try to, tonight we got a stinker, kids. Um, you know, they're 12, it's 12 to three in the seventh. Oh man, anything can happen. No, ain't nothing going to happen. Um, so that I just, I always have viewed myself as a barometer and thermometer of a game. If it's good and exciting, we're good. And if it's not, you can't make chicken salad. So you want to be prepared for stories and vignettes um, like an insurance policy. Um, do you have any of those insurance policies you can, you can give us like one of those, what's your go-to vignette? Oh, it really depends on where the game is at. You know, is it somebody who's done something exceptional? Somebody who's done something hideous. I mean, we were just in Tampa the other day, which, you know, the regular season ends in Tampa on opening day. It's brutal. Yeah, dude. Um, Florida in general. They had 12,000 people inside Tropicana Field. And if you've ever seen it, you know, it's it's like tilted. And I described it as uh, a flying saucer that crash landed. Um, And how... They're, they're never going to be able to draw there because within 20 miles of Tropicana Field, 60% is the bay, is water. So they have very little from which to grow, to go to a bad stadium. It was a brutal game, and we just started to talk about, you know, it would be nice if they could make something out of this, but we're not quite sure how they can. All right. Let's get to the final track on the record. Uh, this is another one of my favorites that I really connected with. Look over yonder's wall. Uh, I love the intro. Peter, play the intro for me. Look over yonder's wall. I have me down my walking cane. Well, I got my silver woman. Yonder canoe. This just kicks in. Now, this was originally written as Get Ready to Meet Your Man. This blues song was first recorded in 45 by James Beale Street Clark, who was also known as Memphis Jimmy. It's a great name. By the time Butterfield got to it, it had been recorded as Hand Me Down My Walking Cane, Just an Army Board, Yonder's Wall, Crutch. This is the names keep going. Although the lyrics were changed a bit, but it's still a story of a mean woman who happens to be cheating on her war veteran husband with the singer. He's basically saying... Hand me my walking cane so I can split quickly before your husband 
who just got back from the war catches us. That's uh, cold. It's very cold. Speaking of that walking stick, what or who do you lean on for support? Ooh. Names that you don't know. Is there anybody who's your Yoda? Who's your, who's, you know. I've got a, uh, two or three, um, and they're all contemporaries. All who have, have had a good creative career. I went to uh, Africa with uh, three friends of mine in uh, February, you know, uh, wanting to do something I'd never done before, and, and it was incredibly wonderful. Um, and that's when you know you've got close friends that you can go a half a world away with and, and spend every moment of two weeks and not beat each other up by the time it was over. Um, well, who were the heroes that that you kind of like? You can't mention Vin Scully. I mean, well, but- Vin was a, a guy that I always wanted to follow, never replace, but to follow. Um, and in a professional setting, he was very much a mentor. Um, socially, you know, again, he's ninety-one, yeah. uh, so he comes from a different time and place. Um, and so it was almost a father-son relationship with Vin. Um, you know, and, and in my business, he's he's the Babe Ruth. He's the best who's ever done it. Sure. And for him to have uh, interest in me and friendship with me was always a big deal. Earlier, as crazy as it sounds, uh, Howard Cosell. The rest of Monday night is given over to those gargantuan goliaths of the gridiron for that bouncing behemoth ballet known better as professional football. Howard was the first sports television journalist. They had not existed until he did, and in the latter stages of his life and career, I got to know him very well. I mean, the three guys who most impacted me were Vin, Howard, and Muhammad Ali. Bad. Been chopping trees. I done something new for this fight. I done wrestled with an alligator. That's right. I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Fast. Last night, I cut the light off in my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. Incredible. Fast. Incredible. And you, George Fullman, all of you chumps are going to bow when I whoop him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked, but the man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. Ali was courageous. He just felt and did what he thought was inherently right, um, especially at a time during Vietnam. He was uh, he was the guy who uh, who led my generation. I wish I could talk to you longer. This has been great. Thank you so much, Charlie, uh, for coming on. Uh, and also, if you can, uh, you know, give me any Diamond Club tickets, it's my favorite place to watch a game. And I'd love to sit next to like Pat Sajak the next time the Orioles come into town. This was so great. Thank you so much, Bob. My pleasure. Thank you. God, I wish I could have had more time with him. He's just so incredible, guys. Charlie Steiner, ladies and gentlemen. Listen to him every Los Angeles Dodgers game. 
And for all things Charlie Steiner, go to his Facebook page. I can't believe I'm saying this. That's how you know the motherfucker's old. It's like, he, he just got a Facebook page. But go to his Facebook page, which is just Charlie Steiner. He is an incredible guest. I'm so happy I got to sit down. I'll be posting his mixtape track listing link. And for all things 500, go to the500podcast.com. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. And follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. June 13th, Shimmy Shimmy at the Comedy Store. Two shows. June 17th, the goddamn Comedy Jam at the Lyric Theater. And June 21st through the 23rd in New York City, actually Brooklyn, I'll be doing Skank Fest. All tickets on my website at joshannamyers.com. Don't forget, subscribe to your favorite platform in any way you listen to podcasts and give this a five-star rating and review it. Say you love it. You know, just say, fuck the 500. Five stars. Don't forget to follow my writer, Morty, at DJ Morty Coyle and check out his Instagram page where him and his daughter sing songs at Being Daddy Cartoons. Now, we just listened to the beep, 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 beep. From 1965. Now, here is an artist that is directly influenced by this album. Here is Duran Jones and the Indications and their song Morning in America. And if you're in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500, send us your song to 500podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and the artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week is Bruce Springsteen week with his 1987 album, Tunnel of Love. And I'm telling you, it's a great episode. So y'all got some homework to do. Stay fleecy. The teachers rise in Richmond As they sleep in San Antonio While the harbor lights on Baltimore Got nurses headed home And the Joes of Maricopa
be a test of the emergency action notification <laughs> system. <laughs> Had this been a real emergency, we would have all been fucked. <laughs> With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Next Chapter Podcasts.